so we're going to show you this clip. But as you're thinking and, and watching this, just kind of think to yourself, you know, has culture advanced or are we, are we digressing a little bit? Um, so we promise this has something to do with the message that we are going to be sharing today. But take a look at this and uh, really think about that question. Welcome to another holiday shopping season. When the doors opened at this Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania store, the pushing and shoving began. One woman was knocked to the floor and suffered a broken leg. This scene has been repeated in hundreds of stores across the country that advertise the Cabbage Patch Kids. The Cabbage Patch Kids are dolls about 16 inches high. They don't walk, talk, wet their pants, or grow hair. They don't do much of anything. But they have upset the supply and demand cycle to an astonishing degree. There has never been such a first-year demand for a new doll. As far as I'm concerned, they're the worst-looking things I've ever seen. I mean, they're pathetic-looking, they're homely. I don't know what exactly the attachment is. I think they're cute, but kind of funny-looking. Last year it was strawberry shortcake, this year it's cabbage batch dolls. The dolls originated here in rural Georgia about five years ago, the brainchild of 27-year-old Xavier Roberts. The original sold for $125, but when Coleco Industries took over the marketing of the dolls, they made copies and priced them at about $25, and the company couldn't make them fast enough. They're manufacturing about 200000 a week in Asia and chartering planes to get them to stores in the United States. But demand exceeds supply, and there is only one reason. Um, I... I like them. This supply and demand cycle created by this doll is a marketer's dream. The owner of the company decided to treat it like a collectible, like a Hummel or a collector plate, and buy it from a customer and then quickly sell it for a very low profit. So people are coming in here selling their $20 dolls to the store for $40. The store then turns around and resells them for $50. Most buyers can't express why this doll is so popular this year, and others can't explain why they want to buy it. But they do want it. I don't like them. <laughs> I don't like them. I don't like their faces. But I want one. What's wrong with us, right? You know, what's happened to us? It's the sort of only reason why you, you look at that and you kind of hope that artificial intelligence takes over the world really, really soon. And maybe they can, uh, somebody can program it all to make us slightly less dumber than we actually are. Um, but, you know, you kind of look back at this stuff and you see humanity at its worst in this sort of situation. And we're not talking about extreme political ideologies or, you know, warring factions of different opinions. We're talking about a piece of cloth in a box that people are, are going to exhibit this crazy behavior for. So you sort of think, well, has anything changed since 1983? And I think the answer is probably not, right? I mean, I looked at some Black Friday memes um, just this week, and this one here, Black Friday tip, number one, get there early, number two, sell your parking spot. Um, here's another smart person, uh, buys a $300 tent to save $50 on a TV. Uh, and then this, it was this your Thanksgiving, Thursday, I'm thankful for my family, Friday, I'll stab you in the neck for a $10 toaster. You know, maybe you've had something like that experience. Um, we wanted to talk about something this week and for the next uh, two or three weeks that is something that, that Jesus spoke about a significant amount of time when he was on this earth. In fact, uh, 
of Jesus' teaching as recorded in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was on the subject of money. And there's no more, more uh, time when money is on our minds than around the holidays when our spending is stretched and our lifestyle is stretched and we're trying to make a whole bunch of things happen that, that can't always happen. Uh, 15% of Jesus' Jesus's teaching was about money. 11 out of the 39 parables... So the parables, just illustrations or simple stories about life, 11 out of those 39 parables were on the theme of money or finances or wealth. That's 28% of all the, the stories that Jesus told were on that theme. It was, the, it was his most talked about topic. And if you look at the, 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 the entire Bible, uh, 30,000 verses in the Bible, 2,300 verses are on the subject of money. 7.5% of the entire Bible is all to do with something to do with, with finances. So if you don't know who I am, my name's Colin. I'm one of the leaders at Anthem, and it's great to have you with us this morning. And, and as we enter uh, the, the holiday season and talking about a subject that can sometimes put our backs up a little bit, put the you know, hair on our back up a little bit. We, you don't talk about these things around the Thanksgiving table, and you shouldn't really talk about them in church either. I always want to recognize that there might be people among us who, who don't totally uh, dig the teachings of Jesus, and you're much here in that sort of I'm checking all this out kind of mode. And I understand that appreciate that. And so if, you're n- if you wouldn't consider yourself a full-on card-carrying, Bible-waving, Chick-fil-A-eating follower of Jesus, I want to just let you know that you get a pass on, on, the, on the, 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 the teaching today. And if you feel offended by something that we say that Jesus said, you're very, very welcome to get up and leave anytime. If you know the four-digit pin that we put on that door, you can go whenever you want to. And so uh, just you know, relax, enjoy this time, take notes, believe it, don't believe it. But as a follower of Christ, and for some of you as your pastor, I feel like it's important that, that we, we, challenge, uh, what, we challenge our thinking based on what we believe Jesus said in this area as we would with a lot of other areas as well. And this is definitely one where Jesus' teaching went against the grain of culture. And it goes against the grain of our culture and our thinking. So um, quick survey. You know, money has a way of getting a hold of us, doesn't it? Um, and, and being at the forefront of our minds because um, it's kind of how the world goes around. And uh, just this last week, I had not one but two four-figure car repairs. So this week has been a, a week when my wife and I have been thinking a lot about money because, you know, two car repairs, over $1,000 each. That's, that's not a great week for anybody, right? And uh, so in the last week, has, um, has uh, easy question, has money been on your mind at all in the last week? Anyone? Right, we're all in that, that boat. How many of you wanted something you couldn't afford? Maybe you don't have to put your hands up for all these, but just think about them a little bit. How many of you had a, a family member who said to you, hey, I bought this and it was 50% off. Look how much I saved. Don't put your hands up because that person might be sitting next to you and you might get in trouble later. Maybe you got a bill this week that you didn't expect and now you're worried about money. Maybe you're thinking, I'm always worried about money. It's always a stress. It's always anxiety for me. Money has a way of, of getting, a hold on it, getting a hold of us. And I think as I look at the teachings of Jesus and at the teachings of the Bible in general, when it comes to money, I've got to, I want you to understand this thing that I believe really, really strongly about this, that when it comes to money, God doesn't want something from us. He wants something for us. That he's not trying to get something from us. He doesn't need anything. But there's a life that he wants for us, and our money 
is a part of that. And so we're doing this series that we're calling The Ladder. And a ladder is something that you use. I've got a ladder here. A ladder is something that you use to get to places where you, that you wouldn't be able to get to if you didn't have the ladder, right? I remember getting a ladder and, um, you know, it's sort of shortly after that time when you've, you've spent a little bit of time uh, putting a table and then, you know, a, a cushion on top and then a bucket or something to reach to change light bulbs or something, and you realize, maybe it's time I should invest in a ladder. And all of a sudden, like, your life opens up. A ladder will, get us, will allow us to get to places that we couldn't get to without it. And so we're going to look at the, what we call the first rung of the ladder today, and it's explained to us in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. And uh, Paul is the author here. Paul was one of the early followers of Jesus blazed a trail around the Mediterranean and starting new churches everywhere. And one of his protégés was a young man named Timothy who started a number of churches too. And Paul, Paul is writing two, two letters, two manuscripts that make up part of our New Testament, two letters to Timothy. And, uh, and here's what he says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Okay, now... Many of you will be thinking, okay, I get a pass on this because I'm not rich, all right? So command those who are rich in this world to, uh, to not to be arrogant, but to put their, put their hope in, not to put their hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain. It's very easy for us to think that we are not the ones that, be, that are being written to at this stage. And um, before we check out mentally and say, well, that's definitely not me because I'm not rich, I want to just give you sort of some alarming statistics really quickly. Um, if you own a car you're one of only 8% of the people that are walking the planet today. So that might be some of you. If you have an annual income of $25,000 a year, that puts you in the top 2% of the world's wealth by income. In actual fact, within that 2%, you are closer in percentage points to Jeff Bezos at $109 billion or whatever it is at the moment than you are to somebody at 94, 90, 96% who, owns, who earns $19,000 a year. So you're closer in percentage points to the richest people in the world than you are to somebody who earns 19000 And I know that there's a lot of us here today who worry about money, stay awake about it, and we, we think we're struggling financially. And I don't want to discount that at all. In the new year, I hope that we'll be able to offer some, a class to help with finances and budgeting and uh, living God's way when it comes to our money. There'll be more, hopefully more on that later. Um, but today, I want us to understand that when the Bible talks about the rich, most of us are in that category. Most of us are in the top 2% of earners in the planet. Most of us are... Uh, defined by the fact that we drove here today and we own a car. We're, in the, we're, we're one in 12 people on the planet. He's talking to, when, when, uh, when Paul's talking to, to those of us who have a, a decent amount of stuff, um, let's read that, that whole verse, that whole verse of uh, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. You know, I think when, when you're one of these people that's, that's rich, it's, there's, there's three ways that we can put our hope, we can mistakenly put our hope in wealth. 
And there's probably three ways we can end up doing it. Some of us see money as a security. We look at money and it's, it's our source of security. You know, if, um, if you were around during the, uh, the 2008 recession, that was probably the worst time where we experienced people, what, what people thought they, they, they had or they owned, maybe their, their portfolio was just shredded. I know some of you are thinking, portfolio? I've got like a tin in my bedroom with some coins in it, you know, but some people have a, uh, you know, a lot of stocks or a lot of wealth, and at times like that, it's probably the, the more rich you are, the more fearful you are of losing it. I think Jeff Bezos lost uh, $3 billion last week when, or last month when Amazon took a little bit of, little bit of a hit. So when you are in the, oh, the, the more rich you are, the more it, it is easy to put, have money as your sense of security. But I think all of us can fall into that trap, can't we? That we can, you know, that we can easily look to money as our security. That's craziness. Money, putting money in, uh, putting uh, our security in money can be a roller coaster ride of emotions. Some of us see money as a source of satisfaction because of stuff that we spend, because we're always looking for the next thing to buy. We're being sent messages all the time by expert marketers of the greatest companies in the world, and we're like, I have to have this, and I'll be satisfied if I can get that. And actually, that's all I want. If only I can have that, I'll do anything to get it. We can look to money as a source of satisfaction. And some, some of us see money as a source of significance. We look at money as a way of seeing whether we're better than the next person. You know, we don't have to, uh, it's no secret what our president thinks most of the time, mainly because he tweets it like five or six times a day. But Donald Trump famously once said, I don't love money, it's just a way of keeping score. We're very good at using money as a way of judging like where the pecking order is, where we stand in relation to the other people that are around us. And money has a way of, of uh, help making us assess, am I better than that next person? Uh, and, and this implies that if I'm better, someone else, if I'm winning, somebody else is losing, right? You know, um, if you've ever been in that situation where you're at the airport, like I was at the airport this week, and there were four lines of uh, security, you know, four different lengths. As I went through security, I, I thought I could pick any one of these four lines. And uh, they were all different lengths. And so what did I do? I thought, how can I choose a lane that will make it so that everybody's lane is equal and it's fair for everyone? Right? No. I'm like, which is going to get me to gate A56 faster than all these other lanes? Because I want to win, and if it means that everybody else loses, the important thing is that I win. And we live in that world of, the, of, of trying to position ourselves in the pecking order better than other people all the time. We see money as a source of significance. So which one is it for you? Is it security? Are we looking at money for our uh, source of satisfaction? Are we looking at money for our source of significance? Which one is it? I know for me, there's, there's at least two there that I can, I can fall into that trap very easily. And putting our hope in money can be dangerous. I've been listening to Dave Ramsey a lot recently. And if you're looking to find yourself a financial guru online, listen to his podcasts. Uh, uh, anything that you find on YouTube for him is amazing. He's going to offend you every five minutes, but he's, you know, he's not there to make you feel good. He's there to help you learn to, to take care of your money. And uh, uh, some of the stats that, that he said, the average American household now has $38,000 in debt outside of their home loan. And it's getting worse. The amount of people that have no debt 
in the last two years has gone from 27% to 23%. So more people in America this year have some debt than did two years ago. Three quarters of a million Americans filed for bankruptcy in the last year, 2018. And the average 2018 undergrad graduate graduated with $30,000 in college debt. So that's the average. So we're teaching young people who in, the most, in most cases have never had a full-time job, have never had to pay off date, debt. We're teaching our, our young people that it is normal to have a significant five-figure chunk of debt through our lives. We fight with our spouses over money. After infidelity, money is the main reason for divorce. And many of us live with worry and fear and constant anxiety over the subject of money. The whole time this has been going on, Proverbs 22.7 has been saying, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is the slave to the lender. Isn't that incredible? The whole time, we're, if we would, would, would live with, with the principles of the Bible, if we would put that on our wall, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is the slave to the lender. Next time you get a credit card application in your mail and you're like, ooh, free points for something, you'd be like, no, because your goal is to make me your slave. Your goal is not to help me. Your goal is to make me the slave of the borrower. But I want to give you a big offer today. And that is that there is a God who loves us and he wants us to be free from fear and anxiety. And he doesn't want us to live like that. He wants us to be free from the fear and the worry that money has on us. You remember the the verse that you command those who are rich, you know, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. And so, so how do we do that? How do we put our hope in God rather than putting our hope in our money. So we'll carry on reading those verses. Uh, Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous. That word generous is a key word for us today. And to be generous and willing to share. Is that key word is generous. And it tells us a little bit about where this ladder is going. Climbing this ladder is stepping out of anxiety and fear and worry and stepping towards generosity. Stepping towards a lifestyle of generosity. Verse 19, we'll carry on. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Think of that word, coming age. We're going to come back to that in a minute. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That there's a, there's a life that God has for us that we're not living. And there's a way to take hold of it. That, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In the, 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 this coming age discussion is a, is a reminder that this present age is not the only thing that we're here for. It's not the only thing that we're living for. There's not just this 70 or 80 years on this earth and then it's done. God is restoring the world to how he intended it to be. There's coming a time when, when God's work will be over here on earth. But for now, for here and now on this earth, we have the opportunity and the privilege to join God in his mission, his redemptive mission on planet earth by being generous. And when we're generous, we're awakening people around us to the life God has for us. When we're generous, we're joining God in his restorative work on planet Earth. When we're generous, when our lives are a part of something like that, we get to take hold of the life 
that is truly life. Secure, satisfying, and significant. And to get that, we have to put our hope in God and not in our money. So I'm going to say, like, how do we get to this? Uh, where do I start? Remember, a ladder is a way that we get to somewhere that you can't get to on your own. So um, our first step in the ladder of generosity is by becoming what we call an initial giver. That the first thing we do, the beginning, whenever we get a paycheck, is to think about giving. And I want to introduce you to a man named Jim, and we're going to see a little bit about what he did. Watch this. Meet Jim. Jim and his family started coming to church to wrestle with the big questions of life, meaning, purpose, and destiny. The church community slowly began to feel more and more like family. But Jim and his family knew, at some point, the church was going to raise the issue of money. It seemed like the only church people openly talking about money were ladies with big hair and southern accents and shady televangelists looking to add on to their mansions. It turned out, Jim wasn't alone in his thinking. A lot of people saw giving money to the church as something for suckers or really radical Christians. Jim began to think. He wondered about all the stuff he had accumulated. His second snowboard, his television for the garage, all the items he purchased from the Sky Mall, especially the personal submarine. All those things he had to have were really of no value at all. Jim decided to turn his investigating to the Bible. A picture slowly began to emerge about giving and money. It turned out giving really wasn't about the church at all. It was about Jim's own heart. The people who seemed to get it right in the Bible were the ones who were both able to manage money and give it away freely. They were unencumbered by the need to have more stuff. Jim liked that idea. The Bible painted a picture of God as giver of everything. Jim was determined to reconsider how he thought about all his stuff and who it belonged to. So Jim and his family decided to give 1% of their income back to God and then nothing really super awesome happened. At least visibly. Jim wasn't better looking. He wasn't granted special superpowers. His kids weren't instantly more loving to each other. But something was different. Jim felt more connected to his church community. He didn't feel conned by the church because it wasn't about the church. It was about what God was doing in his own heart. Jim was astonished. He began thinking about living a bit more simply, dealing with debt, and continuing to increase in his generosity. He actually started thinking about a future in which he would give 5, 6, and even 10% and beyond. But for now, he'd take a small step, and Jim's heart began to expand ever so slightly. So I want to give you three ways this morning, um, three ways that we can become an initial giver. And you know, over these next few weeks, we're going we're gonna to climb this ladder a little bit. You can't, you can't get to the top step of a ladder in, in one step. You've got to take it step by step. So this, this week, I'm not really talking so much about amounts or anything like that, but just the priorities that we have within our world of giving. So three practical ways to take the first step on the ladder. Firstly, give first. Proverbs 3.9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your crops. So when you read the Bible, especially, well, the Old Testament or New Testament, you're, we have to remember that we're reading texts that were written in an agricultural economy, weren't we? Agriculture was kind of the currency. It's the way, the way life happens. So when, when we read about honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits of your crops, that means 
give first. Basically, the giving first, giving of the first part of the harvest is the, har- the hardest thing to do, isn't it? Because, you know, if, if, you, if you thought to yourself, well, when, as, a, as a farmer, if you thought, well, if we get, have anything left over at the, end of the, at the end of the harvest season, then we'll give that. Well, God challenges us to give of the first fruits so that the first thing that we think of in our giving, uh, the first thing that we think of in our finances is our giving. Now, you always knew that the first part of the harvest was going to come, but you didn't know about the second part or the third part. So for these people, it was a lesson in their, in their commitment to God. And I believe it is for us as well. And if I look at the way that I organize my finances, I even thought about this in the last couple of weeks as I've been thinking about today. Uh, when I write down my budget, I tend to list off those biggest expenses first, which is, like for most of us, a house payment. So even in my, my, uh, my spreadsheet, it's, it's my house payment is just rolls off my tongue. It's the first thing I put on that list. And God even challenged me, why don't you put the things that are most important to you at the top of the list? Why don't you make that the thing that is, that, and I give on an automatic basis, why don't you make the thing that is, that is most important to you the second that you're paid? So that you know that, 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 in a sense, you worship God with your giving. You make that commitment that worshiping God through my finances is as important as worshiping God on a Sunday morning when I come to church. It could be that you, you, you plan that on a Monday night. That is as much a worship experience, or should be for us, as, as this is on a Sunday morning. We, we, we give with the first fruits of our crops, of our, of, our, of our wealth. Every paycheck that we get is kind of like a harvest. So we step on the ladder by becoming someone who gives first. And remember I said on this step, it's not so much about amounts, but it's about the priority. Because giving first says to God, I'm giving you, I'm giving to you and your mission, and I'm trusting you with my life. As somebody it's one of the people, hopefully, that challenges you with our relationship with God. I trust that you'll receive this in a sense of like, I want to challenge our relationship with God in every area. And I believe that our, our finances is absolutely a part of that. So my goal for all of us, if you, call you, if you call Anthem Church your home, is that we will all take that step. In some way in our lives, we'll all take that step to be a regular initial giver. And parents, you can get this, this principle engaging your kids. If you're thinking about having children, think, think about how you will mentor and disciple your children as they grow up. That you have the opportunity to teach them God's ways in almost every area of their life. You have an opportunity to teach them how to trust God while they're at school, how to trust God while they're in difficult situations, relational conflicts, with finances, with money. You have, a, you have the opportunity to teach them the way to honor God with their wealth. And as these things, principles are taught to us early in, in our lives, it's easier to continue them on as we go. You know, if, if, if a youth retreat comes up or something, encourage your kids to get there, get them in places where they, where they can be inspired to follow Jesus in their lives. Don't let it depend on how much money you have. Give first, let God know, despite the craziness of my situation, you come first. Dave Ramsey said, you can and will use your giving to change the world. And that's great. But the first life that giving will change will be your own. If you live like no one else, later you can live and give like no one else.
If we want to um, uh, make a lifestyle of giving, we have to think of this second principle too. Give first consistently. If we want to live a life of generosity, we need to make a plan to make this lifestyle change. And that's the same with everything, right? If I'm going to run a marathon, I can't just like jog around the hotel parking lot and then go to Boston, right? It's not going to happen. Okay, there has to be a commitment, a, 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 a commitment to long-term change in our lives, creating healthy habits. That verse 18, it says that we read earlier, it says, be generous. It doesn't say do generous, like it's a thing that, we, that occasionally we step into and we do. But it says, be generous. It says that our generosity should become part of who we are, part of our identity. You know, for me, it's that monthly decision, that monthly choice that every time I'm paid, every time my wife and I are paid to make giving our first priority. I don't want to challenge those of you who are married, those of you who are, have got a spouse at home and on the way home in the car or even today. So how are we doing? Ask that question. Be bold enough to enter into that question with your spouse. So how are we doing with our generosity? How are we doing that area of our life? How are we doing in other areas of our lives where God is tugging on us and and challenging us to go deeper into Him? And this third area, I think, is this. Give in a trackable way. You know, giving isn't always a private thing. We've kind of Americanized the New Testament and said that giving must be this secret thing. And if you, if you uh, line up the passages in Scripture about giving, you'll find that as many of them are about public giving as they are about private giving. And we're cautioned on bragging and you know, waving our, our gifts before we, before we give them. But you know how people used to give in the New Testament church? People would bring their their, their gifts, and they would lay them at the feet of the leaders of the church. It's not going to happen, is it? I thought I'd just wait here for a second, but no. We're not going to do that. But the giving was not always extremely private. Sometimes it was quite public. And if we give in a trackable way, there's benefits from that. If, if, we, if we're giving through a check or online or something like that, um, of course, whether you're giving to a church or a charity or anything, you get a tax receipt at the end of the year, and the IRS gets to help you out a little bit for once, and then you, know, you get to get a bit of a tax deduction, and you get to see, how am I doing? How am I doing with my giving? How am I, am, am I becoming more generous? Is my heart expanding in my generosity? I have a friend who a number of years ago, I heard him say this 20 years ago, he's, and he's a, he's a missionary, and he's, he lives on raised missionary support. He said that his goal in his life was to give a million dollars towards global missions. I heard him say it 20 years ago. I heard him say it about two years ago again as well, because he's got this audacious goal that personally, as a missionary, and he started a bunch of businesses as well, he's doing great, but wants to give a million dollars to global missions. Give first, give consistently, and give in a trackable way. Now, let's, let's, uh, let's wrap this up. Stephen King, um, not known for his sort of theological reflections and not a normal person that we quote from on a Sunday morning. But Stephen King, a number of years ago, was almost dead in a car accident. And he talks about this experience. This is from a, a commencement speech he gave at Vassar College. And after almost dying, he said this. A couple of years ago, I found out what you can't take it with you means. I found out while I was lying in the ditch at the side of a country road, 
covered with mud and blood, and with the tibia of my right leg poking out the side of my jeans like the branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm. I had a MasterCard in my wallet, but when you're lying in the ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. We all know that life is fleeting, but on that particular day and in the months that followed, I got a painful but extremely valuable look at life's simple backstage truths. We come in naked and broke. We may be dressed when we go out, but we're just as broke. Warren Buffett, going out broke. Bill Gates, going out broke. Tom Hanks, going out broke. Stephen King, broke. Not a crying dime. All the money you earned, all the stocks you buy, all the mutual funds you trade, all of that is mostly smoke and mirrors. It's still going to be a quarter past getting late, whether you tell the time on a Timex or a Rolex. No matter how large your bank account, no matter how many credit cards you have, sooner or later, things will begin to go wrong with the only three things that you can really call your own, your body, your spirit, and your mind. And then here's the the challenge he sets out here. So I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others. And why not? All you have is on loan anyway. All that lasts is what you pass on. We have the power to help. We have the power to change. And why should we refuse? Because we're going to take it with us? Please. Giving is a way of taking the focus off the money we make and putting it back where it belongs. On the lives we lead, on the families we raise, and on the communities that nurture us. A life of giving, not just money, but time and spirit, it repays. It helps us remember that we may be going out broke, but right now we're doing okay. Right now we have the power to do great good for others and for ourselves. So I ask you, begin giving and continue as you began. I think you'll find in the end that you got far more than you ever had and did more good than you ever dreamed. Incredible. And the journey on this ladder, for some of us, begins by deciding, I will become an initial giver. I'll make that the priority in my life on a regular basis. Because everybody, everyone in this room wants to step in towards what the Bible calls that life that is truly life. Right? None of us want to be sold a, a kind of a second-hand, second-chance version of life. We want, to, we want to live in the life that God has for us, the life that is truly life. And let's remember that in all of this, God doesn't want something from us. He wants something for us. Let's stand together as we pray. In a moment, we're going to offer our, our worship back to God with a song. But I challenge you, this week as we, um, as, as we separate from here in a few moments' time. Ask yourself, how, God, can I offer my worship to you through my giving? Let's pray together. Lord, I, I pray that you'll uh, uh, help our thoughts, thoughts today, today move past what is essentially just my words and leave us with your word. Leave us with the scriptures that we believe are God-breathed. That have eternal impact. Lord, I pray that you challenge all of us in different ways on how we're to live and how we're to give 
Father, I pray that you'll continually be drawing us back to you, to, to a, a life of worship to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.